caring about the person you're selling to, caring about what's best for them and offering them that, that's much better than just making a sale. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a legend coming back onto the podcast. He's such a wonderful guest to have. We've had several conversations on emotional intelligence. He's the one who has brought this to the mainstream, where this is an active conversation in even corporate America. And we have to thank him for bringing this to the forefront by actually being the first one to lay down the foundational work that so many other authors were able to actually work towards and really bring this to the mainstreams. And he's went beyond emotional intelligence, talking about how to increase your focus and latest book that has just come out optimal is now available to everyone i picked up a pre-order of the copy you can actually pick up a copy of it as well it's going to be about how to have organizational excellence every day i try to get a lot done in a single day i'm sure you do too and we're going to have a conversation on how to get that done dr daniel goldman welcome back to the show it's a pleasure to be here jason thank you so much you know, I had a bit of fun because I always do a little research on my guests, even though you've come back. And I went to Amazon and I'm like, how many books we have here? You have over 200 titles on Amazon, by the way, when you include all your translations and a lot of your work. I've already, you know, gave a little hint to some of your books, but there's a question I love to ask for guests that come on the show. You're on the Selling with Love podcast. So what are you trying to sell? Well, the book Optimal is a sales pitch and it's a sales pitch for people to have a good day at work. What does that mean? It means you're at your most productive, you're highly effective, you're connected, you feel good about it, you're satisfied with what you did, and you're doing work excellently. And I've hit upon a way to facilitate that, and I want to share it with people. So I'm selling a book, but I'm giving away the secrets to having a good day. The moment you start talking about this, I'm just reminded of all those amazing days. I think we've all had at least one day that we're just like, oh, we crushed it today. But it almost seems like it's maybe luck or it's just a random occurrence. But what you're saying is there's a bit of a formula to this. So what are we uncovering here? Well, first of all, let's uh, have more reasonable expectations. A lot of people are kind of hyped by the idea of flow, which is that one time you outdid yourself. You did an amazing job, and it just happened once, and you don't even know why. I, what I'm saying is, look, don't burden yourself with such high expectations. Don't be a perfectionist about it. Have a series of days where you feel really good. That doesn't mean you were like at your tip-top best. It means you did a really effective job, whatever your job is. You know, if you're a computer programmer, it might be a like a small win. You figured out this problem, and you feel satisfaction for that. That's a good day. That's the kind of ingredient. So what are the ingredients of a good day? First of all, you're in a positive mood. You feel good. At the end of the day, you feel satisfied. Why do you feel satisfied? It's because you accomplished those small steps towards some bigger goal. And I don't care what job you're in, you can break it down to what I'm doing today, what I'm trying to accomplish today, and what it's all for. What's the purpose? What's the meaning? Where am I going with this? 
And getting there a little bit every day gives you that good feeling. And so part of the secret of having a day like that is actually focus. You mentioned focus. That's one of the books I've written. It means you bring your full attention, your full presence to what you're doing. And that lots of data shows means that you're going to be at your maximal best. You can't be at your best without focus. If you're distracted, if you're bummed out, if you're having thoughts that are bringing you down, you're not going to have that kind of focus. So being hyper-focused, and focus can be learned. Focus can be enhanced. Uh, What we call meditation is actually attentional training. It means that you are practicing how to bring your mind back from distractions to that one thing that matters to you right now. And when you do that, that essential platform for doing your best, no matter what your best is, no matter how you define it. I definitely know exactly the feeling of having a day that goes like that. But I also know exactly the feeling of the opposite of that, where I'll give you the example. I'm sure it only happens to me. Let's see. I have an idea and I want to be focused and I get started with my work and I just find myself going down this list of emails and I'm like, I'm going to clear these emails and I respond to a bunch of external triggers. And I feel like I've done a whole lot of things all day, but I finished it in. I'm like, I don't even know what I did. I'm a little confused. I'm exhausted. I feel drained. I don't have that sense of accomplishment. And so I'm failing. (laughs) So this is such a common experience. And I'm glad you brought that up because this is one of the uh, keys to having a down day, which is letting yourself be distracted by whatever comes in. Email is such a good example. You see a bunch of emails coming in and you get distracted. You think, oh, I got to answer this guy, this lady, whatever, on and on and on. And before you know it, you have no focus because those emails are distractions. So what I recommend is that you don't go to your email first thing. Focus. Focus on what matters. Prioritize what matters to you today. What do I need to accomplish? What do I hope to accomplish? That should be at the top of your list. Emails come later. They come when you lose that focus anyway, and you can let external distractors manage your attention. But before that, be in charge. Take control of your own awareness. Focus on what matters to you. Do that first. Yeah. Well, I I have to say, one of the things I love the most about working with Americans, I work with clients from around the world, there seems to be this American trait, which is an email that is received, has to be responded immediately. And I have to say, like, on the receiving end of that, kind of awesome. Like, if I write to a vendor in America, I usually get a response really quickly. And we've gotten accustomed to expect that kind of response. So... If you feel like, you know, a priority is to make sure that you're giving timely response, is it something like, okay, no, we have to train ourselves to completely ignore email? Like, I'm sure you can't take it too far. Well, I would say that your emails are probably a mix, Jason. Some of them are, okay, I got to respond right away. Some of them are, oh, I can get back to that later. And take the ones you have to respond to, make them part of your focus. If that's what matters to you today, Okay, then that's the top of your list. But the rest of it, don't let those distract you from what matters to you today. Yeah. Well, I also have, you know, putting some people in place that can actually filter those for me has been quite the liberating exercise as well. I'm sure you've played with that too. Yes, I totally believe in distributed responsibility. If you can hand it off, do it. 
Yeah. Well, I'm glad you wrote a book on Optimum because one of the things I find most impressive about your career is you don't seem to be slowing down. You're picking up. People 20 years ago might have been saying, I'm planning to retire. You've been pumping out books. You've been bringing resources and you're quite passionate about bringing this out. So is this something you've been noticing in yourself and you're kind of digesting? Because you're seriously creating a lot of value out there. Well, there's something I've been passionate about for years, which is called emotional intelligence. I wrote about it first in 95. Actually, the Harvard Business Review was a great friend. They made it famous. They made it essential for leadership. They had a series of books about it. it, went on for years and years and years. Before the lockdown with COVID, if you went to an airport, there was an entire rack from Harvard Business Review Press on emotional intelligence. So they spread the idea. But when I wrote the book in 95, there was very little data. And I'm a data guy. I'm a science journalist, actually, by training. So I'm a writer, but I like research. And now I've written this book, Optimal, with Kerry Chernus. Kerry is a professor at Rutgers. He and I were co-directors of a consortium for research on emotional intelligence for 25 years. And in this book, we are rounding up all of the hard, good, solid research on emotional intelligence and putting it together in a package that makes it available to individuals, to teams, to leaders, to organizations. That's a very interesting concept because, you know, you've written so many books and you're actually partnering with somebody as well to get more publications out. And I know this is a bit on the side, but I'm still very curious. When you decide to write a book with somebody else, like, what is the process that makes you decide, okay, I'm going to co-author this? And does it actually complicate things or simplify things? So I look for experts. So Kerry is an expert on the data. He's been gathering it for decades. And I thought, well, okay, I'll be the writer and he'll be the expert. I did a book called Altered Traits with a neuroscientist named Richard Davidson. Well, Richie, as we call him, he was a fellow graduate student with me. I've known him for decades. is an expert on the neuroscience of contemplative practice. And so I don't have to go into that body of research. He can do it for me. I'll write it up. That's the nature of the collaboration. I look for someone with complementary strengths. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, once you've actually established yourself with your line of emotional intelligence and you actually get to bring a partner along, they get to benefit as well. And then you have all of your writing credibility and all your competency to put it together. Now you get to have an amazing book that actually scratch a new itch, which is a bit of what I wanted to ask. Like, there's got to be something that still bothers you that makes you motivated to continue writing books around the topic, because obviously there's a problem you want to solve. And I'm just wondering, like, what's that itch that keeps you going? Well, I'll tell you about an itch that I haven't scratched yet, but I'd like to see someone else do it. So I'm going to tell you it's about selling. It's absolutely about selling. And it is solving a problem which has put the planet in a terrible fix, which is that the things we buy and use, the material goods, have environmental footprints that are destroying the planet as an aggregate. And this is worldwide, whether you're involved in the extraction, no matter where you are in the supply chain. Uh, you know, if you're gathering minerals from the earth, if you're processing them in a factory, if you're at point of purchase and selling, you're part of a kind of, what shall we say, a collaboration on sadly not only making money but destroying the planet. But I have a way to turn that around, which involves sales, and it's this. If you were to buy a stock, you can get 
any kind of data. There's fiscal transparency in the market. There is zero transparency about environmental impacts in the other market, the market for goods and materials. So I know that younger people are going to be increasingly motivated to look for this information. Older people, sorry, don't really care. They didn't learn about it. It's harder to get them interested. People who today are making decisions in companies are older generation. They don't really get what the younger generation sees coming and cares about. So that means that there's going to be a market urgency for information that does not now exist. And the information can be is attainable. There's something called life cycle assessment. You can take any product. You can take a hot tub. You can take a book. I don't care what it is. It has a history. And over the history of its life cycle, it has different environmental impacts. There is now a methodology for determining and getting a metric for that impact. Here's the sales part. I'd love to see that information become transparent so that at point of purchase, People could compare this cup with that cup, this digit widget with that widget, and not just get price, but get impact. Because that, I believe, in the future will create a market share for companies that are smart and take the first step to be there and say, okay, yeah, we have a bad footprint, but here's our handprint. Your handprint is what you're doing to make it better. And so we found a different way. We reinvented whatever the deal is. Like there's a styrofoam now. It's not made from petroleum. Nature hates things made from petroleum because they never disintegrate. However, there's a styrofoam made from mushroom roots. Well, wow, that is a fabulous rethinking of a product. And what I'm saying is that in the future, there will be increasing market share and that smart companies will chase market share by making a selling point of having a better handprint. That's the idea. That's what I'm passionate about. That's a very aligned thought, by the way. So I'll tell you a little secret of mine, which is, you know, I wrote a book, Selling with Love, but the last chapter, and my whole intent was actually not about selling, it was about buying. I finish on saying that, you know, the way to like level up the field when it comes to sales is we have to become more discerning as buyers because we will create those market opportunities. And so I actually congratulate the people that have demanded to have, say you have a plant-based diet, that you've actually been the first mover to ask for a plant-based meal that actually created alternative products for people, whether that's a diet you align with or not, but you have to be a buyer that cares. And that's what levels up sales as well. And, you know, I look into Canada, one thing that was very interesting when I come visit my family since I live in Indonesia, is I noticed some restaurants now all have the calorie count, the carbs, the fat, and the protein is now becoming mandated. So there's a bit of lobbying that happens on a government side. There's companies that take initiative, but you're absolutely right with the fact that a company that understands that the conscious consumer being such a affluent market if they take these initiatives, they get to be first movers and have the generous profit margins for doing good. And that's a good thing. <laughs> That's true. And I think that as time goes on, younger consumers will want this information more and more. And so this will become a way to get bigger market share. It's doing well by doing good, basically. 
And I think that it's going to be a wave of the future. And the progressive companies, forward-thinking companies, will see this as a smart strategy for winning loyalty from younger people over their lifetime, which is what companies really want. It's interesting that we have to make a case to say that doing good is good business. You would think that would be assumed, but it's definitely much better now. But I think we've played a part, like especially you, with bringing a lot more conscious practices. And now you're doing a lot of the research to show that doing good is good business. Why would companies still choose to do bad? Is there still a big opportunity or are we just not aware of the advantages of doing good? Well, I think that the case for doing good is still arguable that many, many consumers, too many consumers, don't care. So that sales aren't made by doing good. Sales are made by doing the same thing or by competing on old terms, cheaper, better quality, whatever it may be, the argument it may be. These are old market ways of thinking. I'm talking about a new way of thinking about markets. You know, Jason, as someone who's understanding sales, I wonder how this idea sounds to you. I think it's great. I actually, already as you're speaking about this, I'm thinking, wow, well, I think this is one of the grand ideas around blockchain technology. Like we've we've seen blockchain exist in the currency space, but to actually track life cycle of products and origins of products in an unmutable database is actually a problem that I think a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to solve now. And the technology is catching up to the possibility, but there's people who do care about this. I just don't think it's being marketed well enough. And I think it's going to be the job of salespeople and marketers to understand that people want this. We actually have to educate them to understand that they need to demand this. You know, to me, I think everything you want to see in the world gets voted for one purchase at a time. And it's our responsibility to educate people about the power they hold with every dollar they spend. I think there's a missing piece, too. I completely agree with everything you said, but for consumers to make the smart decision, they really need to be fully armed with information about what are the total impacts on the eight or ten systems that support life on the planet. It's not just carbon, by the way. Biodiversity, drinkable water, many, many things are impacted by the way we do make and sell things today. But tomorrow, I think the smart companies are going to be looking at, well, how can we sell by improving this and letting people know what the improvement is? I think, by the way, that would take an impartial third-party evaluator. You want to be sure it's not just greenwashing. Today, companies seize on one thing they're doing, and they advertise that as though they were doing things better but it's just one thing out of a multiple series of things. So we need something, an agency, that can evaluate products in a believable way so that consumers can trust. Dr. Goldman, you've studied emotional intelligence, how we behave as humans, and so you've probably already witnessed this, but it's like we start with good intentions. There's third-party establishments that get put in place. Let's use like organic or bio for like purchasing materials for eating. And then there's a sort of perversion that creeps in. A little bit of like, oh, maybe they have to pay to get that. And now it's like, it's not so partial. There's like a bit of a manipulation and trust is lost. And there's almost this current wave, which is kind of the counter woke movement, you could say, that's very prevalent in the culture right now, which is as soon as you've lost a bit of trust or you've noticed that that third party has made one little flaw, 
you throw the baby out with the bathwater and then you just start going back to that bad habit and not caring at all. So it's like, oh, you know, we wanted to go towards like a hybrid or an electric car, for example, but you realize it still uses a lot of material. See, it's all crap. I'm going to go get a pickup truck, you know, like <laughs> it's like, okay, well, now we've doubled down on the bad side. So is there something we can do to kind of be aware of this trend? Is it natural or is it something we have to pay attention to? I think you're making a very important point. I think that it's important, too, to think about what is driving that way of thinking, that mentality, and how will that change going into the future? Let's say I happen to live next door to the Environmental Research Campus of Columbia, and a scientist there was telling me that with current trends in climate warming and humidity, there will come days in many parts of the world— Bali may be one of them, but I think not. But in South India and parts of Africa, many places, there will be days when sweating no longer helps you survive. People will die because they can no longer cool their bodies. The temperature will be too hot and humidity too high. That's inevitable. It's happening and it's going to happen more. As things get more dire... I think the calculus for individuals and what they do and what they buy will change. And that calculus will say, oh, my God, I can't be contributing to this. I can't be a victim, and I don't want to create other victims. I want to know if what I'm buying is helping or hurting. And I think, as I said, I think this is going to happen with younger people inevitably. I would say that the way the market operates now is irrelevant that's old thinking. Uh, you know, the people who buy the pickups are going to drive pickups, and then they're going to die. Their grandchildren will care enormously because it's a matter of survival. And if it's a matter of survival, then the sell point for companies becomes, you know, we're actually doing good. It's not just greenwashing. Yeah. Well, I think access to the information, as you said, to be able to trust it is going to be a huge part to play in that. And I think we're working towards the right direction. I mean, we're seeing that this is very real. And so people are crossing that threshold. And as I said, there's a better job to be done from marketers and salespeople to hold a higher standard and to not use only greenwashing or at all any kind of greenwashing tactics, but actually do the work. <laughs> well, yeah. And as you said, greenwashing erodes trust. And I think that this whole operation, this whole enterprise that I'm describing, will depend on having an impartial, trustworthy body evaluating things. And we don't have it yet. Well, that's going to be a problem that we're going to be working on. And we're going to have to have a lot of people that are optimally working. So if I can bring this full circle is you spoke about how when you have this goal or this hope for something you're working on that matters definitely supports you working in an optimal state. And I feel like also with everything we've described, there's a large sense of hopelessness in the air. And I'm sure this actually takes you away from your levels of productivity. And so I'm wondering if you have some words of hope for people that are in the workplace and have to solve these big problems. I think one answer lies in a sense of purpose and meaning in what you're doing. There may be an air of hopelessness because the news is always bad news. And as a reformed journalist, I can attest to what goes in the front page is what's going to be upsetting, what's going to make you anxious or angry. 
the news is playing to the amygdala, essentially, to the part of the brain that's looking for threats and wants to be sure you're safe. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is online. That's why conspiracy theories, for example, become so commonly watched. They have big head counts and eyeballs. Anyway, that being the case, given that there's rampant hopelessness, people in a given organization can counter that by articulating a shared sense of meaning and purpose in what we're doing. I just gave a talk to a division of a pharmaceutical company, and their mission isn't to make money. Their mission is to help people survive dread diseases. In other words, to lessen human suffering. Well, that's a noble purpose, and it's that kind of purpose that if you can articulate in any organization, helps people to have their best days because purpose alone motivates people. Purpose engages people. Purpose brings out people's best efforts so people have more optimal days when they feel a sense of purpose. But this comes down to leaders articulating from the heart what matters to them in a way that speaks to people's hearts so that you mobilize the best part of people. That's the counterforce. I mean, I've seen myself work inside organization when there's the strong vision and, oh my God, like I'm happy to sleep on the couch and work really, really hard and it doesn't even feel like hard work. It's fun. There's an addiction to it. It seems like a very healthy dopamine release, although, you know, maybe sleeping in the office and <laughs> working a little overtime is not necessarily the most sustainable thing. But if somebody asked me, like I worked for Mindvalley for a decade and like some of my best days was launching a product that was about, you know, helping entrepreneurs and then doing that, like optimizing the sales pages and landing pages until two in the morning, sleeping on the couch and then in the morning, just running a live event and then finishing going like, wow, we did it. And, you know, that communication that came from the leadership about the values and what mission we had. That just drew in a lot of great talent and got us working really hard. Now, I'm just wondering, because there's a lot of companies, and I don't know about the story of this pharmaceutical company you worked with, but it sounded like they had a strong mission set in stone, but there's a lot of organizations that need to do a rebranding. They need to do a pivot. They want to change maybe the culture and what the company stands for. So have you seen in your research companies that have been able to change that and make the workers more excited, more optimal in the process? Yeah. What we find is that articulating a shared mission that gives meaning and purpose is part of it, but also you want to change the culture of the organization to support that. And that means having leaders who are not the kind of leader you hate, but the kind of leader you love, which means a leader who cares about you, a leader who articulates a shared purpose, a leader who is available, not aloof, I've asked people around the world, tell me about a leader you loved and a leader who you hated and what quality made them so. And, you know, wherever I go, it's the same list. It's basically a, a leader who you respect, who listens to you, who's available, who empathizes, who articulates a mission of meaning. Those are the leaders people love, and they give their best for it. They're more engaged. We have lots of data on this now. But there's something else. In an organization, you want to have someone on the business side, not in human resources or something like that, articulate the fact that this matters, that being like this is what counts here. 
and then supporting that, for example, in a performance review. You don't want to just focus on what people did wrong or what they need to do better. You want to know not just what are the results you got, but how did you get them? Do the people who work for you feel engaged? Do they feel like they want to stay? Are they loyal? Or do they want to leave? You know, you can burn people out, but get the results. That's not helping the organization. And then offering ways to develop these qualities, you know, something that actually works, not just having like a guy like me come in and keynote. And then, you know, the half-life of that is like really short. Or a one-day off-site. You want to have a sustained way of developing people and having leaders who know that part of leadership is coaching people, mentoring them, not just criticizing them, not just ordering them around, that real leaders care about the future of the people who work for them. And that creates immense loyalty. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a biased man. I mean, I'm the selling guy. I do find that the job of a great leader will be a sales job because you're selling people, you know, the reasons why they're doing things for themselves. And I think in the same way that you'll have a bad leader would have the same types of negative traits as a bad salesperson, which is being pushy, caring about their own needs, not listening. And so I'm seeing a lot of parallels in these skill sets. So then I'm, I'm like, okay, well, let's take away my bias. It almost seems like being a better human makes you better in organizations all around. And the age where we're seeing robots are starting to take over a lot of these functions, I feel like we need to go back to getting human training, not business training, to actually be effective. <laughs> That's very well put. I mean, the one problem with AI from an emotional intelligence point of view is that algorithms have no emotions. They're just decision rules. That's all they are. They don't empathize. They might be able to do a kind of surface reading from facial expression and so on, but they don't really resonate with people. They don't have the capacities to inspire. They don't have the capacities to be self-aware even because that part of self-awareness is knowing what you're feeling and why you're feeling it and how it shapes your biases or thinking or impulse to act. They don't have that. So I think that leadership will always be a human responsibility. Yeah. All right, well, it does have the capacity to impress, I'll say that much. <laughs> I was speaking to a spiritual leader who's a client of mine, and, well, she was very adamant on the fact that we will eventually see that our technology will gain sentience, and so we better be kind to our chat GPT friends and such, because maybe that skill will develop. I mean, we came from non-sentience and developed sentience as well. It was only a matter of time. But one of the things I find very, very interesting is our relationship with technology is almost like an abusive relationship, right? We use it to our advantage. We almost enslave it for our needs. And I find that there's maybe going to be a, a loss of humanity, uh, of expectations of people who work with you for people that have been used to working with technology and just said like, yeah, it works 24 hours, never sleeps, always does what I do. And now when you're getting in a position where you're having to deal with other humans, you're like, what? They're having a bad day. How dare they? And so how do we keep a pulse on making sure we don't lose our humanity as the world becomes much more a series of decisions and algorithms and we're becoming accustomed to that? I think that there's always going to be a human reality to how we work, how we relate, what leadership comes down to. I don't think people would follow a chatbot the same way they would follow an inspiring leader. 
I don't think that a chatbot will be able to articulate a shared mission from the heart to the heart. It has no heart. So it might imitate that, but it's not going to be the real deal. It's crazy how we can almost detect the lack of soul in things that have been created by AI. And I can't explain it. It's kind of weird. And I have a feeling when you were at the cutting edge of talking about the effectiveness of emotional intelligence on how it contributes to every aspect of performance and team management, it was hard to measure back then. And so I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to keep that humanity and nurture it. And quite frankly, I think that ends up being the number one trait that will allow us to grow within an organization and make the impact that we need to make for the problems we need to solve on this planet. Because boy, are there many problems we need to solve. <laughs> <laughs> many problems. And I think caring, you know, there are three kinds of empathy, Jason. I think I've told you about this before, but it bears repeating. The first time is cognitive empathy. And chatbots can have cognitive empathy. It's understanding how people think about the world and the terms they use to describe it to themselves. The second is emotional empathy. And I'm not sure a chatbot can have that because they don't have emotions. They can have kind of a surface reading, but that's it. And then the third is caring or concern. And, you know, if you're selling with love, it means you care about the person. You're not just trying to close a sale but you're trying to form a relationship, which will be an ongoing sale, so to speak. But to do that, you need to have trust. You need The other person has to feel that you care about them. I remember research years ago that showed that the most effective salespeople didn't just make sales. They formed relationships. They were kind of consultants to their customers. They'd even say, you know, this widget isn't the best one for you. I think the best one is this other one. If you do that, that's very powerful in terms of solidifying a relationship because it means you don't care about manipulating that person. You care about their well-being. And that means they can trust you. And trust is essential for settling with love. It's the love part. It's the concern. It's the caring about them that means that you're going to have an ongoing relationship with that person client or customer or whomever. <laughs> well, you know how there's this quote that says, you know, data has become the new oil in the sense that it's become the most valuable resource. And I think the quote words you're saying right now is this concept of trust is about to become one of the most valuable resources available because it's going to be so scarce. And I find that, you know, for being able to show up daily, to be able to continue to deliver on your promises and to not use anything that manipulates or that does things without caring for the other person are going to be the key activities you need to do to build on that trust because we're definitely starting in the negative. Like we're all at a guard with each other <laughs> and obviously perpetuated by a lot of the news cycle. But yeah, I think for somebody who wants to you know, show up powerfully and well-balanced has to be an acknowledgement that trust is going to be the number one thing. Well, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that going into the future, one of the alarming things about AI is that there are no safeguards. You know, when Isaac Asimov, a science fiction writer, wrote about robots back like decades ago, he said every robot has to be programmed so that it will never harm a human being. And we don't have that guardrail in any AI. And that is what alarms me most about it, actually. Well, 
if we only give it the data, I mean, if you talk about like language models and you only give it the data that you would find on posts and comments on the internet, you're not going to be feeding the most pretty picture of a decent human <laughs> being in his best or her best behavior. There's some care to apply there for sure. <laughs> Daniel, I'm very excited. Like I said, I've actually pre-ordered a copy of Optimal. I think I've mentioned before I hit record on this episode that an organization that I work with, their number one value is excellence. So I'm getting a copy for everyone on the team as well. But I'd be very curious to know from your side, for somebody who's looking to pick up this book, what is it that they're most going to be able to gain from going through this volume? I think for an individual, someone in a workplace, the main take-home is about how to have a really good day at work, more days than not, and why emotional intelligence will help you get there, why it supports that, why it enhances that, and what emotional intelligence actually means and how you can bring it to your organization. I think that's the arc of the book. I like that it's something that's actually feeling attainable. It's not a pie-in-the-sky promise, but God, if we could just get good days in a sequence— man, we'll get to make some big changes without burning out and being actually happy about our day-to-day -day work. I do want to do a callback for anybody who's really, really loved this conversation as much as I did. We'll have a link to the previous conversation we had about emotional intelligence where we go deeper. And one of the key things I loved in the first conversation we had is where emotional intelligence was actually a lot more about understanding the self than trying to read the mind of others, which was a big misconception that we got to debunk in that conversation. And boy, do you have a library of books that you have written, that you have worked on, ideas you have pushed forward, that has made the workplace and everyday lives much better. So I I'm very, very grateful to all your contributions, Dr. Goldman. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Again, big takeaways for me is just understanding that when we have bold goals, we understand that there's a vision, we're more motivated, not letting our attention be drawn into these emails. We talked a bit about that and just making sure that if there are key communications, we make that a part of our focus. We've talked a lot about you know some of the itches we need to scratch, which is how do we make the world better by being better at selling and caring and having more data and building on that trust. But overall, a fantastic conversation. I love these having you with you. It's like a, a brain exchange for me. But I'm not letting you go without the question I ask all my guests before they leave, which is you are on the Selling with Love podcast. And so what does selling with love mean to you? It means caring about the person you're selling to, caring about what's best for them and offering them that. That's much better than just making a sale. Dr. Daniel Goldman, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, and all of your literature. I'll be encouraging everybody to pick up a copy yourselves. Thank you so much for tuning in. Keep using emotional intelligence to stay optimal. And of course, keep selling with love as well. Thank you once again. Jason, thank you. It's always a pleasure. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.